within this week's Torah portion and all of the great stories. And it begins by recounting how we came to Egypt, right? Now, there are, these are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt. And then it goes on to tell us how And there was a new king that arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And so he enslaved the Jewish people because he was afraid of us. And even though he enslaved us, the more oppression that was placed upon us, the more that we prospered. And so he had to take on a new tact, right? This enslavement of the Jewish people is the backdrop for our introduction to Moses, his flight from Egypt, and of course, his encounter with God at the burning bush. There's so much going on. However, that is not what we want to focus on this morning. Instead, we want to look at the figures of our story who are often the most overlooked and yet played a tremendous role. We want to talk this morning about the brave and often heroic women in our Torah portion. The first women that we are introduced to are Shifra and Pua, the midwives who defied Pharaoh's order to kill all the male children who were born. It says, however, that the midwives were God-fearing women, so they didn't do as the king had ordered, but let the boys live. The king of Egypt summoned the midwives and demanded of them, why have you done this and let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, it's because the Hebrew women aren't like the Egyptian women. They go into labor and give birth before the midwife arrives. I mean, they're kind of basically saying, ah, what could we do? Like by the time we get there, the babies are already born. Therefore, God prospered the midwives and the people continued to multiply and grow very powerful. Indeed, because of the, the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. Rabbi Carol Balin of Auburn Seminary notes that the very first act of civil disobedience appears right here in this week's Torah portion, right? That, that these women chose to defy the act of the government because they felt that it was not only unjust, it was wrong. Rather than obey Pharaoh's orders, Shifra and Pua quietly resisted because they feared God, it says. And it's interesting, who are Shifra and Pua? The Torah portion just simply says, that they are Hebrew midwives, but the Hebrew could say like these are Jewish midwives, right? Hebrew midwives, or they could be midwives of the Hebrews. So which one is it? Of course, the majority of commentators argue that Shifra and Pua were Jewish. And this is why they defied Pharaoh's order. However, there are other commentators, including some of the oldest commentaries we have on the Bible from Josephus and Philo, who argued that Shifra and Pua were actually Egyptian. And this would account for why Pharaoh originally trusted that his order would be followed, right? Because if they were Jewish, why would, you know, if Pharaoh said, kill the, ba- the Jewish babies, like, he, he it trusts them. What's interesting is if they are indeed Jew- uh, Egyptian, then it makes their fear of God and defiance of Pharaoh even more remarkable. But either way, the Torah says that Shifra and Pua were rewarded for their faithfulness. It says that God prospered the midwives, and because the midwives feared God, he made them founders of families. Whether they were Jewish or not, 
the point is they defied what Pharaoh had ordered them, knowing that they were putting their own lives at risk in order to save these children. This is also our first example of a white lie. <laughs> white because lie. Because when they are called before the throne of Pharaoh to answer for why there's all these Jewish little boys, they make up this little story. Oh, the women are just spitting them out. I can't get there fast enough. And so we see that actually in the Torah that there are some circumstances when it is okay to tell a lie, especially if it is to save a life. The next great woman that we have in the Parsha is Yocheved, the mother of Moshe. Um, Yocheved, as we learn, was, as we learn later in the text, we sort of have to piece things together later from little bits and pieces later in Exodus. We learn that her husband, Amran, is a grandson of Levi, but that she is a daughter of Levi. So this means that she's either the aunt or the cousin of her husband, and she's definitely older than him. Um, so it's an interesting uh, relationship. It's also interesting that she is, the text says that it's a, a grandson of Levi married a daughter of Levi because you have two descendants of the priestly line, two people from Levi. So not only is this just a sort of pedestrianly kosher relationship, but this is like an extra kosher relationship. So Rashi does the math, and he says that she would have been 130 years old when Moshe was born. So this is another miraculous birth um, that would just like Sarah, who we've seen already, and as we'll see in later years, we have Hannah, we have Miriam, we have many miraculous births happening. So anytime a very old woman gives birth to someone, what's going to happen? Something <laughs> special. Right. Yeah, usually that's the case, right? You have somebody who wasn't able to have children, although in, in this case, she did have other children. But the fact that this was kind of a miraculous birth story, and it's interesting that Midrash and other um, you know, biblical literature actually have all kinds of Midrashic tales about the fact that you know, this was very similar, kind of like a virgin birth kind of a story. It's very interesting if you see where some of the literature takes it. But the point is just simply it's a wonderful it's a wonderful text. So she has Moshe, and uh, this is an illegal birth, and she hides him for three months, and it says that she's so taken with his beauty. He's such a beautiful child, um, which is an interesting thing because all mothers think that their <laughs> newborns are beautiful. All mothers would, would protect their newborns, um, but the, the rabbis have all sorts of fanciful stories about what this means. Um, one of them is that he was born circumcised, um, and that was why he was so beautiful. At any rate, she manages to hide him for three months. And as any mother knows, around three months is when the cries start to turn from eh, eh, <laughs> to ah! And then it becomes very difficult to hide the baby. And so she comes up with this idea, and she puts him in a box, and it's called a teva. So everybody remember when we were talking about Noah, that this word for this thing that Noah builds is Teva. The only other time this word is mentioned is this thing that she puts Moses into. And we were talking about all the connections between these two things, right? They're divinely directed. They're com like commanded by God, right? They're left to, there's no steering mechanism. They're left to wherever God wants them to go. There's a lot of parallels between uh, the narrative in Noah and the narrative that is here with Moses. So according to the text, she puts him in a box in a teva and sets it in the reeds. This is unlike all the movies you've seen where the box is pushed out into the raging waters of the <laughs> Just Nile. Just let him go. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's not what no, happened. No, he was hidden there in the reeds. says he stayed in the reeds. His sister was there, Miriam, watching over it. And it was still in the reeds where uh, Pharaoh's daughter finds it. So Miriam, as we see in, the, in the, what comes next in the story, shows incredible chutzpah. Because along comes the daughter of Pharaoh. Um, the daughter of Pharaoh... Well, but first of all, back to Miriam. Miriam is traditionally, she's six years old when this happens. And she was brave and astute, when you think about that, to assert herself unto Pharaoh's daughter, right? To basically say, hello, I've got an idea. She clearly is a little child with chutzpah. So when Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and puts two and two together and figures out, oh, this is a Jewish baby, she pops out of the reeds and she says, would you like me to find you a wet nurse? <laughs> Which is a brilliant idea because Pharaoh's daughter is unable to nurse this baby. Normally, she would, if she is going to take this baby, she's already been moved to compassion, but we don't know yet what she's going to do. So Miriam is thinking, ooh, I could maybe find a way for us to still be involved in, in, this, in his life. Um, otherwise, he's going to get taken to the palace or he could be murdered. So she says, I have an idea. I'll find you a wet nurse. And Pharaoh's daughter, I think, knows exactly what's going on here. I think she knows that this is the baby's sister, and she knows that the wet nurse is going to be the baby's mother. And her response is so generous. She says, yes, go. Miriam goes and fetches her mother. And then Pharaoh's daughter says, nurse this baby, and I will pay you wages for it. It's a great act of defiance, which, which Joshua is going to unpack a little bit more. I think that Pharaoh's daughter is one of the most overlooked heroes of the Torah. What she does requires tremendous chutzpah and civil disobedience to her father and his regime. The Torah implies that she knew what was going on. She's not an idiot, right? Here's this little child who happens to be right around where this basket is. She says, I know a wet nurse. She's six, like you expect that the first person she's going to mention is her mom, right? I think we can see that she's, she knows exactly what's going on, and she trusted her servants also in the matter, right? She told her servants, go and fetch this child, there, the, woman. The, uh, f fetch the, she sends one of her servants All to right. get the basket out of the water. And then when she draws it out, right, she calls him Moses, Moshe, Messes in, in Egyptian means to like draw out. And uh, her servants are there listening to all of this. And so they had to be in on it because they could have easily went back to Pharaoh and said, hey, I want you to know what your daughter is doing. To defy the command of her father is akin to the daughter of Hitler secretly helping Jews and defying her father's command. I want you to think about this. She's willing to, her father said, kill all the male children. And she's figuring out a way to save this one. She not only supports Yocheved's nursing Moshe and raising him within her own home, but she also pays for it, as Monique mentioned. She provides protection and provision for this family. This means that if an Egyptian soldier comes knocking on the house and sees this little boy, Yocheved and Miriam and everyone in the family go, oh, no, 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 this is a child of the royal household. We're being paid wages by the royal family. We are employees of the royal family. So she's provided a license for them to continue raising this boy. And what's interesting is the rabbis note that her reward for her act of faith is Moses' name. Think about this. For the rest 
of not only Moses' life, but all the way up until this time, and even mentioned in in, uh, the words of the New Testament, he is always called Moses. We don't even know what his Hebrew name was when he, he was given when he was born. So the idea is, the rabbis say, the reward for her obedience is that the name she gave to Moses would stick, right? And that forever Moses would be known by a Hebraized Egyptian name, not a Hebrew one. Moshe is a Hebraized of Moses, which is an Egyptian name. It's not a Hebrew one. So throughout history, Moses, one of the most famous Jews who ever lived, has always been known not by a Hebrew name, but his Hebraized Egyptian one. Mm-hmm. So we, the story fast forwards again. Moshe goes to the palace. He grows up. He knows that he's a Jew. And so when he sees Jewish people being abused, he murders an Egyptian guard. The Pharaoh says, the Pharaoh realizes that my daughter's little Jewish pet, who has been this little curiosity, has suddenly become a problem and goes to murder Moshe. So Moshe leaves and finds himself in Midian. He finds himself at a well. There are seven, and then the story says, and Yitch and Ruel, Ruel is one of the names for Yitro, and Ruel had seven daughters. It sounds kind of like the opening of the fiddler on the roof. And I yeah. have five daughters. So his seven daughters are at the well, and there are these other shepherds who come and are harassing them. And Moshe, this Egyptian guy who has no obligation or loyalty to them, stands up and does what's right, just as he had done in Egypt. And he shoes away the shepherds, and he waters the flock, and the daughters take him back to their father. Actually, the daughters go back to the father and say, Dad, you'll never believe it, but this Egyptian guy saved us at the well. Dad says, hey, bring him to me. Checks him out, realizes he's a good guy, and gives him his daughter, Zipporah. And Zipporah gets one of the most interesting and confusing stories in this Parsha. So if you, um, if you are looking in your scriptures, we're going to Exodus chapter 4. So this is now after the events of the burning bush, which is a whole sermon in and of itself, right? <laughs> the great events. And so now they're on their way to Egypt, exactly what God had told Moses to do. Go back to Egypt. Aaron's going to speak on your behalf, right? And so as they're traveling to Egypt in order to carry out the instructions of God, there's this crazy story that happens that is only a few verses long. Now, they have two children. They have Gershom, remember? Moses names him, I was a stranger in a strange land. And they have, we learn his name later. They have another son named Eliezer. At a lodging place on the way, Adonai met Moshe and would have killed him. What? I thought Moses was under God's blessing, right? God had just told him, go, and I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to speak through you. And now, all of a sudden, God wants to kill Moses. But had not Zipporah taken a flintstone and cut off the foreskin of her son. She threw it at his, feet, at his feet, saying, What a bloody bridegroom you are for me. But then God let Moshe be. She added, A bloody bridegroom because of the circumcision. That's all it says. This is all we have. So everything I'm going to say to you now is midrash. <laughs> sort of. What does it say about Moshe that he has been chosen to be the redeemer of all of Israel and he has not bothered to circumcise his own son? What does that say about him? It says that even though he knows he's a Jew, he has become so assimilated and so disconnected from the ways of his people. He has not bothered to do the very most basic thing, which is to circumcise his only son. 
And Zipporah, in this case, this is the only story we have in the entire Bible of a Gentile woman, a Gentile and a woman performing a circumcision on her child. And she is not happy about it. Um, as we have today... It's kind of like you forced me to do this because you didn't do this and now God like, is, is angry with us because we should be the example. If we're supposed to you know, go and deliver the Jewish people, we should come bearing Jewish, <laughs> Jewish kids, right? Right. So she's so angry about this. Nowadays, when you hire a moil, you know, for our son's bris, we hired a moil who had performed 6,000 circumcisions. So he was a machine. It took about 10 seconds, and there was just a little whimper, and it was done. Zipporah doesn't have one of these herself, has never done this herself, and she's using a Flintstone. So there would have been a lot of screaming and a lot of blood. So this informs her, what a bloody bridegroom you are to me! And what, here's another interesting thing. But it's interesting after that, it says God wanted to kill him. She does this, and then verse 28 says, but then God let Moshe be. So she saves his life. And by, accordingly, she saves, you know, the, the entire plan that God has, has set out is continuing. So what's interesting is that we don't hear any more mention of her for the rest of the, of the, of of the this narrative. This Parsha. So where does she go? I think that she did not go. She, I think it's pretty clear from the text. She and her sons did not go with Moshe into Egypt. Because we see in later chapters, after Moshe has delivered the children of Israel from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness, Yitro comes and reconnects. And I think what Yitro is doing is reuniting this, uh, this separated family. Yitro is coming to, well, he went off to back to Egypt and now it's apparently he's got, come out and apparently he's become a big deal. Let me go check this out myself well, and see if really Zipporah is in a good place to reunite with her well, husband. Yeah, I mean, I think he's serving as the peacemaker, right? I think she was so angry at Moshe that she decides to go back to her father. And her father is the one that said, all right, let's see if we can work this out. Yeah. What Geely learned in school called a solving circle. Let's have a solving <laughs> circle and figure this out. <laughs> now, one of the interesting things is, is that you know, she's a daughter of Yitro. He was a sheikh of Midian. Um, and Yitro, according to tradition, was a monotheist. Um, and so this is why there was such great affinity between Yitro and Moshe. The Druze community, uh, there, you know, there's this Arab group in Israel, in Lebanon, in Syria, in many parts of the Arab world, they are they're sort of their own subset. They consider Yitro to be their ancestor. And so through Zipporah's marriage to Moshe, all of the Druze of all over the Arab world consider themselves to be related by marriage to the Jewish people. The, the Druzim are interesting because they're Arabs, but they're not Muslim and they're not Christians. They're their own religion. And they're the, the only Arabs up until recently who en masse like, regularly served in the Israeli army. And the Israeli army trusted them. Um, I'm sure Dana could have all kinds of stories of um, you know, her interactions with, with Druze soldiers and Druze citizens. Um, but that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, Monique and I were talking a lot about this last night, about how the Druzim say that they are the descendants of Yitro. So um, another cool fact, you know, the makeup store Sephora, it is named after the Greek spelling of the word Zephora. So um, based on the legend that she was extremely beautiful. Uh, so what can we take from all of this? What I take from all of this is I see what Moshe is doing here. 
So far, he's written the whole book of Genesis, telling everything that's happened and unfolded in the establishment of the world and the creation and the covenant with the Jewish people. But now, as we turn the page to Shemot, he's beginning to tell his own story. And for the first half of Parshat Shemot, he's telling stories that he wouldn't actually personally remember. He wouldn't remember when he was a baby. He wouldn't remember when he was just being you know, pushed into the palace. So these were stories that he would have learned probably from his older sister, Miriam. I think it's very important that before he gets into this really dramatic narrative of the plagues and the Red Sea and the going into the wilderness, that he takes the time to give honor to the six women who saved his life, without whom none of this would have been possible. Mm -hmm. So the six women are Shifra, Pua, Yocheved, Miriam, um, Zipporah, and Pharaoh's daughter. I think that says, speaks a lot about Moshe because he is extending honor where I feel that it is definitely due. The other thing is you often see is some of these figures are clearly play an important role, but other times we see that it's the people who seem to have insignificant roles who actually play the most important one, right? It's kind of following the words of Yeshua that the greatest are actually the ones who are considered the least in the kingdom of heaven. And they're the ones who will turn out to get the, <laughs> get the place of honor in mm -hmm. the end. We also receive these beautiful portraits of what we call civil disobedience. Uh, people who consider laws unjust and decide, I'm not going to have anything to do with that. I'm going to resist in my own, in whatever capacity that I can, I'm going to try to find a way around um, this situation. And we see that especially in the case of Pharaoh's daughter, but also the midwives of Shifra and Puah. The other thing that is really interesting is that if, I mean, it's likely that Shifra and Puah really were Hebrew midwives, but let's say they weren't then that means there were three of these women were not Jewish, they were Gentiles, that God used in order to preserve the Jewish people. Over and over again, we see this pattern happen again. If, for example, if you look at the genealogy of Yeshua, there are three women who are mentioned there, right? And all three are not Jewish. No, four. Four. Five. Anyway. <laughs> As I've always said, there are five women. <laughs> No, so you want to expand actually, on that? Actually, four of this, if Shifra and Pua are not Jewish, then actually it's four of the six because only Miriam and Yochevet are Jewish because uh, Zipporah isn't Jewish, right. Pharaoh's daughter isn't Jewish, and Shifra and Pua are not Jewish. So I, always, I love that in the, in the Bible we actually see all these great stories of these amazing Gentile women who fear the God of Israel and who stick their necks out in a really significant way. And I'm really happy that we don't gloss over those things. And that's what we're talking about in our uh, Women of Valor study right. that we do once a month. For example, the, the women who get specifically mentioned who played a pivotal role in the survival of the Jewish people, one is the woman who runs a, a house of prostitution in the city of Jericho, right, who hides, Yehoshua and Kalev. And there's also, we see Ruth, right, who played, she ends up becoming the grandmother of one of the greatest Jews who ever lived, King Tamar. David. You also have Tamar. Tamar. Tamar, who redeemed the line of Judah. We have Yael, who, slay, who slew the general Sisera, giving, helping the, pave the way for 40 years of peace in the land of Israel. Again and again and again and again, across the scriptures, we have these stories. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. So with that, Avinu Shabashamayim, our Father in heaven. Thank you for all of the beautiful treasures and nuggets that we find in Scripture. 
that the rabbis say that the more effort we put into it, the more that we get out of it. That in our study of your word, we should turn it and turn it over again and yet turn it even again because everything is in it. Because your word is a really a reflection of you, Yeshua, who is the word made flesh in us and through us and around us. We pray, God, that you would deepen our love for, for you, your word, and draw us closer, not only together, but closer to you. So we pray that you would do these things in us and through us. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach, in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. So please rise so we can begin to wrap things up with the words of the Elenu, recognizing that it is our obligation to praise the creator of all. Aleinu le shabe 